Thank you so much, Donna and choir and musicians for leading us to think about the cross. What a powerful, powerful introduction to where we want to go in our text as our children make their way to Children's Church and our choir makes their way down. I, I want to just give you a little bit of background. We continue today in a series in First Peter. We've been studying this marvelous letter for the bulk of our summer for the last couple of months, and we move into the third division of this book. We've talked about grace in salvation. If you go back, if you want to study, even if you've not been with us, if you go back and read this incredible letter of 1 Peter, you'll see some remarkable things. In the first couple of chapters, you see all that God has given us in salvation, that he brought us from death to life, that he has caused us to be born again, that he has kept for us an inheritance in heaven. I mean, it's just phenomenal language that would encourage these people that are beat down and persecuted and hurting. And then we move from there to talk about God's grace and submission. And we looked at how God gives us order for our relationships. In fact, the big idea that we've kind of studied under is this, that we are who we are as the people of God because of who Jesus is. And we talked about submitting to employers and our relationship to the government. And we looked at our relationships as husbands and wives. And even in the church, how we submit to one another gratefully under the hand of God. And when we do, God's order seems to make sense. You know, if you think about that, maybe that's been your experience. But the more I've lived my life, when I do things God's way, they seem to work out a whole lot differently than when I do them Scott's way. And I'm not talking about Scott Pittman or Scott Alexander. I'm talking about my way. Rarely do I do things Scott Pittman's way or Scott Alexander's way. You know, I've had several guests this morning that have been really confused by that. They've had somebody say, oh, you need to meet Scott. Well, we have three ministers on our staff named Scott, and it's incredibly convenient to pass the buck when something goes wrong. Oh, I think Scott did that, and you're talking about the other one. But we've had a great time with that. But I'm so thankful for these men, for Brother Wes, and for all of our staff. Thankful for what God is doing in these days. We really are sensing a stirring. Well, we move to a unique section today. And we're on good ground today. You know, as we planned these sermons out almost a year ago and walked through this for our Sunday school classes to be studying together. Our small groups have been studying this book. We move today to the third and final section of 1 Peter. And it's God's grace in suffering. We're going to see today that Christ suffered for us, and His suffering is not only an example that we could follow, but it's also the reason that we have hope. And so as we look at Christ's suffering, I want to invite your attention to 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. We're going to look there together, and we're going to unpack some ideas that we'll see. Peter's point is incredibly clear. His readers are a very small minority. They have been beaten down. They've been persecuted. They've been hurt deeply by the Roman government. They've been oppressed because of their faith. We've said it over and over again. At almost any moment, they could have tapped out and said, I'm not going to be vocal about my faith anymore. And life probably would have been easier had they done that. But they didn't do that. They continued. And Peter writes a letter to encourage them. Here, Peter, this apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who had walked with Jesus, sends them a letter, and what great encouragement they found there. He gives us a new big idea, though, that I want us to follow along as we think about this. Again, we've seen these, these new divisions, if you will. We've seen, if you'll kind of move on to the next slides and let us see, we've seen now grace and suffering is where we're going. And here's the new big idea. He presents to us the significance of the sufferings of Christ. The significance of the sufferings of Christ. And hear me, church, I want everybody to kind of lean in for a second. Most people believe or at least understand that Jesus died. 
But I would say it this way, and John MacArthur said it this way, that he died, many people know. Why he did that, many people surmise. And so today I want us to consider the, uh, the, the idea, the concept of why Jesus Christ died. Now some of you say very simply, I understand that he died for sin. Well, yes, we're going to talk about that. But it's critical to your understanding the meaning of the suffering and the death of Jesus to understand how you and I live spiritually. See, here's the question of the day. What is spiritual living? I'm preaching under the heading of that topic, the, the sermon title. What is spiritual living? As we walked to the graveside this past week, not only with my niece, but even yesterday with a member of our church who had lost a family member. As we have walked to the grave of many that over the course of this year and over the course of your life, as you stand at that place of, of contemplating life and death, I want to ask the question, how do we really live? What is this life all about? And I believe Peter, as he begins this section, he begins to talk to us about spiritual life, gives us some answers. So let's look together, if we can, at this notion of Christ suffering for our sins. Uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, we'll read through 22. Christ suffered once for our sins, excuse me, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but was raised to life in the Spirit. So he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Those who disobeyed God long ago, when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat, the ark. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And the water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God. And the angels and authorities and powers accept His authority. Now think about this with me. It's sort of like a big parentheses on both sides. He starts with the death of Christ. He ends with the resurrection of Christ. And between those two parentheses, he explains many, many things that flow out of the significance of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so for today, I don't want you thinking in your mind, yes, a historical event happened, Christ died. No, I want you to think about the implication. I want you to think about the application. What does it mean for you sitting in the pew today? What does it mean to you that Christ died and rose again? And we'll consider this from Peter's perspective. You see, he gives us all of these things in between and saying that in his death, he accomplished these things. In his resurrections, he accomplished things. What did he accomplish? Well, he preached liberty. We'll look at these. Before we can truly understand the significance of the cross, there's one more thing that you and I need to understand today. You know, our society is almost hypersensitive to danger. Would you agree with that? There's warning labels on everything, everywhere. I mean, there are warning labels that tell us that our hot coffee is hot. There are warning labels that tell us not to iron our shirt while we're wearing it. That's the truth. There are warning labels that tell us which end of the chainsaw to use. Now, the frightening part of all of those warning labels is that somebody somewhere tried it. 
Somebody tried to dry their hair while in the bathtub. Somebody tried to iron their shirt while wearing it. Somebody tried to use the wrong end of the chainsaw, I'm guessing. And it probably didn't work out very well for them. And consequently, they went back and they stuck a warning label on there. We are hypersensitive. There are labels that explain and break down everything that's inside of everything. As if somehow we understood what was already in there and needed to know those things. It's unbelievable to think. I heard someone say it this way. As far as all of these things that could threaten our lives, it might be a terrorist attack, it might be a bomb on an airplane, it might be a criminal, a toxin, a disease, a form of pollution, it may be an unsafe food product, it may be a car that fails a crash test. But we are clearly aware, keenly aware, and even as I said, hypersensitive to danger. As we think about all those things, it might be the media itself that constantly corrupts our children is is the thinking. We are overexposed in our lives daily to something new that would make us fearful. And what really to me is disgusting about it is even certain food supplements that are supposed to be good for me, they come out and they say, well, this will do you in. And you just don't know who to believe and where to turn. But we're hypersensitive to danger. I want you to hear this this morning. This is important before we really dive into our text. Your greatest enemy is not physical. Your greatest enemy is not material. Your greatest enemy doesn't come from a can or a bottle or a product. Your greatest enemy does not come in human skin. Your your greatest enemy is not physical. Now, I know some of you are already jumping ahead and you're saying, I know where he's going with this. He's talking about Satan. No, I'm not. Now some of you are curious. I'm going to say something that's probably going to be controversial out of context, but I'll explain myself. Do you realize that your greatest enemy is God? You say, Pastor, you've lost your mind. The Bible says that the same God who gave you life and breath is the same God who can take it away. The Bible says that without Christ Jesus, we are enemies of God. The Bible describes him in Deuteronomy as a consuming fire. The Bible describes him in a a terrifying way in Isaiah. It says that he is like a vintner that would stamp out, that would trample grapes. And he said the picture is this, that God is literally trampling out the blood of his enemies and it's splattering on his robes. Not very tasteful in polite company. But the idea that God is... A God of wrath and a God of justice and a God of judgment is often forgotten in our minds. Now, I want you to see that God is a gracious God and that makes the good news of our text even greater. But we must not lose sight of it. You see, we have treated God in our society like our best friend. We have treated God in such ways that we would thank Him and praise Him that He gives us a good parking spot at the mall. And we'll thank Him for small little things like somehow He is a divine vending machine or genie in a bottle that gives us what we want. And He is kind and gracious and grandfatherly. And yet the Bible paints a picture that is vastly different. In fact, Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 10. Look on the screen with me. Jesus said it this way. Do not fear those. In fact, read this with me. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Now, we don't like to go there. In fact, in seminaries and in preaching classes and in conferences, they would say, preach the message as positively as you can. I get that. I understand that. And today, I'll end on a positive note. The positive note is that grace wins. The positive note is the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. But make no mistake, if you are here today and you say, well, I don't bother God that much and God doesn't bother me, we sort of have a little agreement and everything's fine. It's not fine. You are at enmity with God. You are at war with God. Your sinfulness has caused you to be cut off from God. Your sinfulness was the demand of Christ's blood for Him to redeem us. And if you today think that you and God have got a special arrangement or agreement, you are sadly mistaken. I don't mean to be insulting of that, but I will try to, at least as lightly as I possibly can, rain on that parade of sensitivity. You see, let me bring a little truth into your sentimental imagination of such thinking. God is an ever-present deadly danger. One commentator said it this way, it wasn't terrorists who wreaked the real havoc ultimately on all of the people who died in the tower in the Pentagon on 9-11. It was God. It wasn't terrorists who could kill the body and soul. They could certainly take life from the body, but they could not dispatch their eternal souls their ultimate destiny because as Jesus said he's able to destroy both body and soul now some of you are saying pastor where are you going with this the, the Bible gives us a clear indication that wisdom dictates you and I ought to fear the Lord in fact the Bible says this the Bible says to us in Proverbs the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what wisdom it is wise for you and for me to fear the Lord. I want to give you very quickly uh, a notion of this in, in very simple terms of why we should fear God. Let me give you a, a, a quote from Puritan pastor of yesteryear. He said, God is the avowed and eternal enemy of every sinner. I read that again in context, understanding that God is the Redeemer. God is the one who has satisfied His own righteous wrath by Jesus' blood. It is a, a fretful thing. Jonathan Edwards took hold of that notion of Isaiah, uh, of God trampling out His enemies. And he wrote a, a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And people were catapulted into the kingdom, fearful that they would slip into hell. The, the report is that as Edwards preached that sermon, people would cling to the columns of the church or onto the back of the pew for fear that hell would open up and swallow them. Today we need to fear God. Why? Let me give you three quick thoughts. Number one is this. It's not in your notes, but I want you to see this. God has established an absolute moral law. Let's go to that next one. He's established absolute moral law that reflects his holy perfections to which he requires flawless obedience. What am I saying there? God is holy and he demands holiness. That means that every single one of us are in trouble. Here's what I want you to see. He's the lawgiver. Let's go to the next one. If we will. He's the lawgiver. God established the standard. He said who gets into heaven and who doesn't. I hear all kinds of people setting their own standard. I'll keep the Ten Commandments. I do right. I pay my taxes. I keep my yard cut. I don't kick my dog. I love my wife. And all of those things are good in and of themselves, but none of those make you holy before a holy God. He set the standard, and he said the only way that you will enter into my presence is to be holy and perfect. Well, that puts us all in a lurch. We're all in trouble. But we should fear God because of that. 
You see, we fear all kinds of things in life. We fear the hot coffee and we fear the chainsaw and we fear the electricity in that iron or the steam there. But we don't fear a holy God and we sin so flippantly with our mouths and with our lives that it just must make all of heaven tremble to think. My sinfulness is far more sinful than I ever surmised. I know my own heart. A friend of mine named Steve Canfield, who is an evangelist, often says this, if you could see in my heart, you'd probably spit in my face. That can probably be said of each and every one of us. That if you knew the wickedness in our hearts, now we're, we're decent people, we try to act right, but we have hearts that are blackened with sin. And God, the perfect lawgiver, is the one who has set moral absolutes that reflect from his character. Now, secondly, I want you to see this. He's also the judge and the warden. He's not only the lawgiver, he's the one that enforces the law. He comes to the place of establishing for us this notion that the first one references sin. The second one references that he's not only that lawgiver, but he is the prison keeper that has prepared an inescapable prison of suffering, of separation, sorrow, and wretchedness to be forever occupied by the guilty. You say, Pastor, I didn't come in here today to be beat up and hear about hell. Well, again, there's good news coming. Hang on. But if we don't understand the depths of God's love for us because of the nature of His holiness and our lowliness and the breadth of our separation, we'll lose sight. He's the lawgiver. He's the judge and warden. And you need to hear this. God is the executioner. He's the one that establishes that notion. Not until you understand this do you understand why Jesus died. And with that in mind, let's look back at our text. And as we look at our text together, we see one of the most uh, powerful, shortest, simplest, and richest summaries in the New Testament given of the meaning of the cross. Look with me, if you will, at this thought. Christ bore witness through his unjust suffering and was vindicated. I love this. He was vindicated through his resurrection and ascension. Look with me at 1 Peter 3.18. I'll put it on the screen and I want you to read it with me. Here we go. You ready? Everybody sit up straight. Take in a big deep breath and let's say it together. For Christ also, that's me, all of us, let's read it together. Here we go. You ready? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This may be the most concise statement that you will ever see regarding the significance of and the reason for the cross. Let's peel this sentence apart together if we can. Let's consider it together. Number one, I want you to see Christ suffered unjustly on our behalf. Christ suffered unjustly on our behalf. He did not deserve what he went through. You and I did. He did not at all deserve it, but you and I did. He is holy and righteous and pure. I, I love the language of this text. One is singular and one is righteous. That Christ, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous many. God, the Holy One in Christ, died for the unholy, all of us. Christ, the pure one, died for the many who are defiled. 
Christ, the, the innocent one, died for the guilty masses, the righteous for the unrighteous. What a powerful statement. His death was sufficient to pay for all of the sins that we have ever committed and all of the sins that we ever will commit. And that wrath that we deserve fell upon him, and now the significance of the cross begins to rise. Maybe some of you begin to say, you know what, I've never thought of God as an enemy, but I was an enemy. What do we use as language for being saved? We surrender. We simply hold our hands up before the Lord and say, Lord, I can't do this anymore. We wave the white flag of surrender, and He takes over our lives. We say to Him as a conquering King who in love benevolently and graciously has offered salvation to you and to me, we say, God, I give up. I can't save myself. Would you save me? And we place our faith there. And when we place our faith there, he saves us. And he has, again, satisfied his own wrath in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. That ought to make us want to shout. That ought to bring such incredible joy into our minds and our hearts and our lives because Christ suffered for sins. He died for our sins. That word in some translations maybe that Christ suffered. Others it'll say Christ died for sin. It is the, the suffering unto death. The, the language of either works well for us. Uh, Peter doesn't use the verb to die anywhere else so we see suffering could absolutely fit here but this idea is that you and I need to understand that none of us when we suffer can say I don't deserve this and now we look at things that happen in life and say I don't understand this suffering the story was phenomenal my brother shared at the funeral this past week a notion of them when Maggie was first diagnosed that they shook their fist toward God and said God this is not fair you have forsaken us and forgotten us and left us in a place where we counted on you as faithful and now you're not faithful but they had to reel that back in, and God began to show himself as faithful, and God began to demonstrate in their hearts and their minds this thought. I gave my own son so that Maggie could be free eternally. I, I again, don't want to make this about her or about our family or about that circumstance, but the message was so clear. Even if God last week had allowed a cure for cancer to come, Every day for the rest of her life on this fallen world, she would have faced new dangers, new pains, new suffering, and ultimately would die. All of us are going to die of something one day short of Jesus coming back first. That's just truth. And if we base our lives on the truth of that perspective, then we begin to see the fact that Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, we ought to shout. The, the hymn writer, Horatio Spafford, said it this way. He wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. He said, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. That would be a great place for a dried up Baptist to just want to stand up and shout. Amen? I say it often, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. Your sin has been nailed to the cross. Jesus, the lightning rod of God, took upon himself all of the wrath of heaven so that you and I could be made right. And that statement, if you would, Dylan, go back to that verse for just a moment, to uh, 1 Peter 3, uh, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous 
for the unrighteous. Don't lose the language. He's already talking about how suffering for right and suffering for wrong is, is this paradox. But he says, now Christ has suffered. He's died for the unrighteous. Why? That he would bring us to God. I love this. It's a picture of one person bringing a second person into the presence of a third person. It's like being introduced to someone of notoriety, and and you have no access to that person, but somebody who does says, hey, come, let me introduce you to somebody. Jesus died so that he could bring us into the very presence of God. But he died unjustly. He didn't deserve it, and yet in his perfect justice, he cannot shrug off sin, and therefore he took our sin and put it on Jesus, the righteous, to bring us to God. I could go on in this language, being put to death in the flesh but live in the spirit. I love this language, the flesh and the spirit, death to life. They're they're identical phrases. Think about it. What did God do to bring life about in Adam? He breathed the spirit of God, the breath of God. He breathed into him from death unto life. I love that picture. When you and I find ourselves in a place of being saved, when we've trusted Christ, this intends to show balance and correspondence to this glorious antithesis. We used to be dead, and now we're alive. We used to be in darkness, and now we're in light. We used to be hopeless, and now we have hope. We used to be miserable and enemies with God, and now we are joyfully made right with God, reconciled to Him, join heirs with Him. And it takes me back to those first two chapters where he says, you've got an inheritance waiting for you, buddy. I have held it for you. I have loved you so much that I would cause you to be born again because of his spirit. Hallelujah. And if we can't get excited about the cross, oh, that verse has just resonated in my mind. For Christ died. He suffered once for all sins. He covered them all. Some days I find myself just scared to death that I'll slip out of the grace of God and I'll slip through his fingers, but he's kept me. The Bible says that he holds me and no man can snatch me out of his hand. It doesn't mean that I sin and thumb my nose at that sin and say, now I have a license to sin. No, I fear God and I recognize, oh God, you've covered all of that sin. And so I don't have to ask for forgiveness over and over and over. What I do is confess it. I say, Lord, I know what I've done is wrong before you and I confess it and I forsake it and I run to Jesus spiritual living is walking in the victory that Christ has given spiritual living is not trying to earn the favor of God stop trying start trusting walk in him with victory and joy Christ died unjustly secondly I want you to see this Christ bore witness through his unjust suffering he bore witness through his unjust suffering Now, we're going to deal with this text a little bit more on Wednesday night because there's a lot to unpack here, but I want to say a couple of things about it. I know you all dealt with this in Sunday school. Um, Let me give you a couple of phrases. I began to study it. We're talking about the phrase in verse 19 that says that he preached to spirits in prison. And some of you came today and said, I want my pastor to explain that to me. Well, I'm about to. I'm going to solve all of this. You ready? Actually, I want you to hear that Millard Erickson, one of the commentators I read, said that there were 180 different interpretations of this text. I hope you packed the lunch. Number one, no, I'm not going through all 180 of them. Let me give you a couple more encouraging words. Chuck Swindoll, who I have great confidence in as a preacher, said this is one of the thorniest texts in all of the New Testament. 
Uh, Curtis Vaughn said it's one of the most perplexing passages in the Bible. So stay there for just a second, Dylan. So I started going for the heavy hitters. I said, I want to know what other people think about this passage. And so I looked at the church fathers and some of the early leaders, and I found that Martin Luther, I said, surely Martin Luther, who has written commentary on so much of the New Testament, would give me great confidence. And here's what Martin Luther said. He said, this is a wonderful text and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for a certainty what Peter means. (laughs) I looked to Martin Luther, and he said, I ain't got a clue. That's southern vernacular. Now, we've got to ask some questions. To whom did Jesus make proclamation? When did he make proclamation? What did he proclaim, and where did he proclaim it? I'm going to answer those questions in total on Wednesday, but for now, let's just think through it. Some say that Jesus, from the time that he was dead on the cross on that Friday afternoon before the Sabbath, when they pierced his side and found that he was dead and water uh, and blood flowed from his heart, that he actually descended into hell and preached to the captives that are there. That's one group. They say that he preached to Old Testament people that had listened to Noah preach. That's where Peter comes out. He says he preached to those in Noah's day, the disobedient. Some would say that this is about fallen angels, about demons who are in the abyss. If you go back to Genesis and look, there is a picture of some angels that did wicked things. They're horridly wicked. In fact, if you look at their sin, it was so horrid that God then at that point destroyed the earth by water and promised never again to do that. But even when Jesus came and was casting out demons, the demons cried out to him and said, Do not send us to the abyss. And I believe that there is, in Scripture, very clear evidence that there are demons that are locked away, that have been cast away. And one day Jesus will throw all into the lake of fire. But the book of Revelation talks about them coming out with stinging fury in that great tribulation. They've been locked up since the days of Noah. So some would say he was preaching to them. Others would say, very simply, that he was preaching through the voice of Noah. Jesus preached through the voice of the prophets, a word of repentance and a word of salvation that Noah for 120 years preached. That's a logical interpretation, that Jesus was preaching, and it was a foretelling of Jesus leading captives free from captivity, that he would prophetically say, one day redemption is coming. Now, again, I can't answer all of those questions of what they did. Suffice it to say that I'm going to deal with this on Wednesday. you got to come back for part two. But as we think about it, the greater matter is not where and when he did all these things. There's good argument for all, and this has gone on for centuries. The argument is this. I want to make sure that you hear very quickly. You better never make a doctrine on one verse. Don't go to seed on one verse anywhere in the Bible and say definitively this is it. We have to come to the text with humility. My favorite response was that of Charles Spurgeon. He said, when I come to difficult texts of which my mind cannot understand, I fall on my knees and I raise my hands toward heaven, rejoicing that I have a Savior whose thoughts are not my thoughts, whose ways are not my ways. They are higher than mine. They lead me to worship.
One day we will fully understand exactly what happened between the crucifixion and the resurrection. We know that Jesus said to a thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. We understand that heaven as it currently exists is not what it will always look like. Heaven is the presence of God, but one day the very heavens will come down, this new Jerusalem, and we will live together with him on the new earth, and it will be incredible. We've done those studies. We've talked through that. If you're interested in heaven, I can give you resources in our library that will point you that way. Jesus entered into the world of the abode of, if you will, the the dead, Sheol. And as he did, he claimed victory over death, hell, and the grave. He took the keys from the devil, in essence, during that time, and he proclaimed victory. Jesus' death, Jesus' burial, Jesus' victorious resurrection leads us to an understanding that he is sovereign over all. And we know because he did those things prophetically, and he has prophetically said, I will come again You can take it to the bank. Jesus is coming back. Amen? That ought to give us hope. So suffice it to say that Jesus bore witness. We'll talk about it at length in which one of those. You need to hear this. Jesus not only bore witness through his unjust suffering, ultimately he was vindicated through his resurrection and ascension. You need to know that without the resurrection, we are hopeless. The the point is very simple. If you place your faith in Christ, then your sins are on Him, and you've been reconciled to God once for all. Hear this. I I loved it. It was one of my favorite preachers of yesteryear that shared these words, an old African-American preacher named E.V. Hill. He said, Jesus is not your marketer to increase your sales. Jesus is not your therapist to make you feel better. Jesus is not your affirmer to improve your self-worth. He's not your benefactor to give you what you want. He's not your sponsor to get you through your 12 steps. He's not just your advisor to guide you through life. He's not your lottery ticket to li- uh, for you to live on easy street. He's not your talisman to give you good luck. He is your savior. He is your redeemer. He is your king. He is your prophet and your priest. He is Lord. Make no mistake of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Make no mistake that we are enemies with God until we surrender to Him by faith and trust Jesus Christ. And that makes life worth living. Amen? Well, Christ bore witness and He was vindicated through these things. Now, that takes us to our place. I want you to see this. Secondly, we can bear witness as well. And we do this through suffering and through baptism. And when we do this, God vindicates us. Number one, we bear witness through baptism. As we look back to our text, look with me if you will. Let's see, beginning in verse, we'll start in 20. Those who disobeyed God long ago when they waited patiently while Noah was building his boat, only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And the water is a picture of baptism which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. You need to know this very clearly. We say it often. We are a Baptist church. We believe strongly in biblical baptism. Biblical baptism does not mean that baptism saves you. Now, to run off the rails and say you must be baptized to be saved is an affront to the work of Jesus Christ. But to run off the rails and say baptism is not important is an affront to the command of Christ. Jesus said, be baptized. And somebody that is saved will desire obedience and they'll want to be baptized. The picture is very, very important for all of us. The picture of salvation through judgment. The same water that lifted the ark 
drowned everyone else. Those who were in the ark of safety and salvation were saved. Those who were outside the ark of safety and salvation died. Those who are in Christ are saved. He is the ark of our salvation, not the waters of baptism. It judgment through this sense, uh, or salvation through judgment is clear. And for you and me to understand this, he says water doesn't clean your conscience. It doesn't clean your body and make you right before God. These are just waters. There's nothing magical or mystical. And yet today, Sidney and Elizabeth have said, identifying with Christ, my old self is dead, buried, and gone, and I'm raised to walk in brand new life. You see, we make witness by that. They both preached a sermon, and the only words that came out of both of their mouths were Jesus Christ. Scott asked the question, who is the Lord and Savior of your life? And what did they say? Help me out. Jesus Christ. Because of that affirmation of testimony, they say, now, I identify with him. You've heard me use the illustration. What they did today was put on a wedding ring spiritually. I put on this ring 25 years ago when Stephanie walked down the aisle and we said vows before God and joined our lives together. And then she gave me this ring as a symbol. And this ring simply tells the world, I belong to God. No, it says I belong to Stephanie. Baptism says I belong to Stephanie. No, it says I belong to God. It's a wedding ring spiritually. It's just a symbolic act, but it's far more than a symbol. Here it says that we proclaim Him we bear witness to him through baptism. Secondly, I want you to see this. We bear witness through holy living in this wicked world. This is implied by the reference to Noah. I know our time is short. I want us to just bring this to, to culmination. It's implied by the reference to Noah. It took him 120 years perhaps to build the ark in obedience to God. And his neighbors watched and laughed and ridiculed this old man who spent so much time building an ocean liner in the middle of the desert. They'd never seen rain in the middle of the dry ground. But his godly life and his godly words, he preached righteousness to his generation. And as he did, they were condemned by those words. Rather than having people stand in line to get a birth, only eight people got on board. Noah, his wife, their sons and wives, and Peter believed, by the way, in a literal flood in Genesis. Jesus believed in a literal flood. He quoted about Jonah. I think that he uses this to give credence to these people. Yes, what you believe, even in spite of persecution, is still true. You know, sometimes when difficult things come into our lives, they cloud the truth. It would have been easy for members of my family to say, God, you've allowed my 15-year-old daughter to get cancer. You're not trustworthy. Some of you have gone through difficulty and you said, God, I don't know that I can trust you. And Satan stokes that fire because he wants you to distrust the Lord. And for us, when it becomes clouded, we need to come back to the rock-hard established fact that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can bear witness to that by holy living. I'll close with a, an amazing story that it was actually recounted years ago in our daily bread. There was a missionary, and he was working with a remote tribe in Papua New Guinea. He was sharing the life and ministry of Christ. And in fact, he began to act out scenes from the life of Christ. And from the front row, the chief of the tribe sat. And he was engaged in this. For hours, this missionary had shared with this tribe through a translator who had become a believer in another tribe another area, another village. 
And when he came to the crucifixion, this missionary had a makeshift cross and he climbed up on it and he was telling the story of Jesus. And the chief stood to his feet and said, enough, take him down. I belong there. He got it. He said, take him down. He doesn't deserve this. I belong there. All of us. If we're honest and understanding, if we today have heard through the Spirit's beckoning that Jesus paid it all and we owe everything to Him, we deserve the cross. He deserves glory. And yet the Bible says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ suffered and died once for all for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Questions remain very quickly in terms of application. I want to ask you very simply this, just in your own heart and in your own mind. Have I truly trusted Christ as my sin bearer? Are you today confident that he has taken upon himself your sin because you've asked him to make that application? You have surrendered to him. Are you trusting him? To do that, you view yourself as unrighteous, unable to present yourself to God by your own works, and you begin to say, I can't save myself, I need you. As the writer said in Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Number two, have I testified to my faith in Christ through baptism? Now, again, baptism can't save anyone. One of the most incredible experiences I've ever had as a a pastor or on a staff of a church, we were at a a church in Olive Branch, Mississippi, and we had a spontaneous baptism. I, I just told people, there are many of you that have never been biblically baptized. Some of you were baptized as a child, and then later on you came to faith in Christ, and so now you've not said, I'm professing Christ, and now I want to obediently be baptized. You said, well, I was baptized, and now I'm saved, so I'm okay. I said, no, you need to get your baptism on the right side of your salvation. And I said, the water is here. We've prepared it. And they said, well, I I don't have anything to, to wear. And I said, hey, you didn't come prepared, but we did. We went to Walmart. And we bought clothes for folks to wear. We bought swim trunks and we had robes. And we said, if you want to be baptized. And we had several people that came forward during the invitation. And at the end of the service, they were baptized. I I just sense God leading me to ask that question today. Have you testified to Christ as your sin bearer through baptism today? The water's here. It's still full. Scott Pittman even said it was warm. How about that? If you need to be baptized, we'd love to baptize you today. You just come at the end of this service. Thirdly, I want to ask you this question. Are you testifying to him? Are you bearing witness to him through holy living? Maybe you've allowed sin to creep into your life, and you need to confess fresh and new today that you want him to to cleanse you, to make that application yet again. The Bible's clear. We confess our sin. He's faithful. He's just. He has forgiven your sin at the cross, and you can have restored fellowship with him through confession today. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you're doing in our midst. God, I pray that you would draw people to this place to be saved. And I pray, God, you would draw people to this place of being obedient, whether it's a confessional need or it's the need of baptism, a professional need. They need to profess you. 
God, let your spirit have his way in this place during this invitation time. In Jesus' name.